the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the Book of Numbers. God had preserved and blessed the children of Israel, giving them victory over the Amorite territories around. Balak, one of the Moabite kings, grew terrified at the thought of Israel going to war with his people. He sought the help of a soothsayer named Balaam to curse God's people. God told Balaam not to go with Balak and the Moabites, for the Israelites could not be cursed. Balaam told this to Balak, but Balak would not listen. Balak thought he could appease God by making seven altars and offering rams and goats. But the offerings of God are broken and contrite heart. God would not go against his own word that his people, the nation of Israel, were blessed. We join Pastor Will back in Numbers chapter 23, verse 9. And so the Lord says, this is why I can't curse Israel. For from the top of the, now Balaam's relating, from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and they shall not be reckoned among the nations. For who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of even the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. God shows how he sees his people through the eyes of Balaam. Balaam's looking out. And remember, Israel had four camps. So he actually doesn't get to see the whole camp. He just gets through a quarter of it. One of those four camps, and this is his impression. He says, from the top of the rocks, I see him, Israel. And from the hills, I behold him. Lo, check this out. This is what I see. This people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. The word there alone means to be unique from others because you're the only one to occupy a space. So it's not lonely alone, but the idea of no one else is going to occupy the space that they're in. What space was that? Well, Israel was in covenant with God. They're his covenant people. So he didn't treat them like he treated other nations. He doesn't reckon with them as he does with other nations. They were in a special place with God and therefore under his blessing. What God is giving to Balaam here as he looks over them and sees them, he's giving Balaam an amazing vision. He's giving Balaam a supernatural understanding of his relationship with Israel. So that when Balaam looks at those people, he sees more than just a mass of people below him. He sees them through the eyes of God. And when he gets to verse 10, he almost kind of chokes up a bit. He says in verse 10, he's overwhelmed. He says, who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of of a fourth part of Israel? Balaam, he doesn't see, when he looks, he doesn't see a mass of tents, but he sees individuals who are loved and blessed by God. I don't know if God was showing him supernaturally fam one family at a time and then going to the next one over and over again as he's standing there from that lofty height. But whatever it was, Balaam became overwhelmed. He says, I can't count them all. I can't even get past one of their four camps looking at them this way. Oh, they're so blessed. And then he says, so much so that I wish I were one of them. He says, let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. 
Balaam sees all the blessings that this covenant God was in with Israel brought to them in this life and eternity. And what God shows him in that is better than anything any God has ever offered to him before. Anything. He says, let me die the death of the righteous. As we read this, I don't know about you, but I almost feel sad for Balaam a little bit because he makes mention, let me die the death of the righteous. There's a problem though. To die the death of the righteous, you gotta be the righteous. And Balaam is not. He is not, and he's keenly aware of that. That he doesn't have a relationship with God like this. He's not in covenant with God like this. And so he almost, in a sense, the sadness that's there, I wish I had what they have. He longs to have what they do because he sees how awesome it is. But I don't feel too sad for him because once the vision's gone, he's back to his scheming. Balaam never changes. He just wants what they have. While God gives Balaam an amazing vision, he also gives Balak and the leaders of Moab a beautiful sermon. Because what he's showing them is, guys, repent. All of you can be right with me too if you just stop opposing me. There's two lessons for us there. Because as we look at this, you know, do you see how God sees you? That's how he sees you. You're in covenant with him. A better covenant, in fact. You're in the new covenant with him. One that can never fail because it's based upon his faithfulness and not based upon your faithfulness. So do you realize how God sees you? Do you realize how much he loves you? How much favor he has for you? How much he wants to bless you? The condition that you're in because you're in Christ? I mean, think about it for a moment. You know, if, if God were to give a supernatural vision to someone else of the condition you're in before him right now, you'd be overwhelmed. That's why it's so important for us to read the scripture. We read in Ephesians chapter one, what does it say? Paul says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he spends the first three chapters telling us what they are. Like, you need to know those things. I didn't know those things when I was a new Christian. I wish I did. And I don't think it was necessarily my pastor's fault. It's just for whatever reason, I gravitated towards a more of a legal relationship with God. And so I didn't know what God saw in me, in the sense, not in me, but how he saw me. I didn't know what he thought about me. The idea of him blessing people or loving people was for others. Others who were much better than I was. Others who were more obedient than I was. Others who were more spiritual than I was. And frankly, others who I was pretty sure were saved when I wasn't. And yet that's how God saw me. Which is the second thing that this shows us. You know, you can very easy and go and say, well, yeah, I I see how God blesses so-and-so, but I'm just a failure. Well, then repent. Nobody needs to throw stones. Just repent. Just turn around and say, I want to go that way too then. That's all Balaam and Balak and all Moab had to do. And trust me, there would have been great rejoicing in heaven. God wouldn't have been like, yeah, but you're Moabites, man. I mean, Moabites, you're not Israelites. I only do Israelites. I won't let you be attacked because you're related distantly and stuff. But, you know, that whole thing with Lot, that was freaky. So, no. No, not at all. The Lord would have been so excited to bring them into the kingdom as well. He would have been excited for them to be a part of this as well. But they didn't. That's not Balak's reaction at all. In fact, look at Balak's reaction in verse 11. After he finishes this thing where he talks about how blessed they are, Balak said unto Balaam, what have you done unto me? I took you to curse mine enemies and behold, you have blessed them all together. The phrase there, bless them all together, it's the double blessed. You have blessed them beyond blessed. In other words, you haven't even brought a mini curse on them. 
There was nothing. Everything was just blessing. And that is not what I paid for. I got my lunch today. The Lord tested me because I told you all to be nice to your server today. And they brought me bad food. I mean, I was not happy because I was hungry. And it wasn't just that it was food that was wrong, the wrong order. It was stuff I couldn't eat. So I I was like, now I can't eat this. And I was like, Jesus, you got to help me because I just told everybody else to be nice to their server today. And now I got the opportunity to do it too. But that was not what I paid for. (laughs) So I wanted to go all Balak, but I I didn't. So, you know, he's not happy. He says, you know, what have you done? But Balaam answered and said, verse 12, must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord has put in my mouth? Balaam acknowledges God's sovereignty, but he uses it as his scapegoat. You might think, okay, that's over. You're fired. Let's just move on from here. But Balak's not. He's not going to end there. What's interesting is Balak, he sees the emotion from Balaam because when he says this, it sounds pretty powerful. It sounds pretty emotional. Balak is convinced that when he brought him up here and he saw the vastness of Israel's numbers, that that overwhelmed Balaam so much that he couldn't see past it to do his job. So he figures, if I can bring him to a spot where the view is a bit less favorable to Israel's odds and numbers then maybe he'll be able to keep his emotions in check long enough to manipulate the gods so he can curse him. So verse 13, plan B. And Balak said unto him, come, I pray you, with me to another place. From whence you may see them, you shall see but the utmost part of them, and you shall not see them all. And curse me them from there. So the idea is, is listen, I I put too much on you, man. You could see the whole army of Israel and it was too much for you. So I'm going to take you to a different spot and all you'll see is the edges of the army this time. And then go ahead and curse them from there. I think you'll be able to do your job then. So verse 14, he brought them into the field of Zophim, which means the field of the spies. This is where Israel came and they were actually looking at the land of the Amorites. And then remember they sent a delegation to the Amorites, said, listen, we've noticed in looking at the land, we can't get to our destination without going through your property. So would you give us leave to go through your property? And of course, the Amorites said no, came out and fought them and Israel whooped them and took their property. So he takes him to that same spot where you can see the land of the Amorites there to the top of Pisgah. Now, remember I told you the reason that Israel had to move a little bit closer from Pisgah is because Pisgah blocks your view. From Pisgah, Balaam, when he would go look at Israel, he, the mountain would be in the way. He'd only be able to see the edges, the one edge on this side and the one edge on the other side. He would not be able to see the bulk of the army camp there in the Jordan Valley by the Jordan River. So he figures this is a good spot. And there he built seven altars and offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. That's a lot of work lugging around all the materials to build an altar in the mountains and then dragging the animals up there and doing the butcher work and then offering them up there. It's a lot of work. And yet because they saw the altars and the offerings as like magical charms to capture God's favor and not just tools for true worship, They were willing to do all that hard work. Isn't it sad all the hard work we'll do to be religious, but we won't lift a finger to actually worship? I mean, truthfully, it's funny the things we'll substitute for really just sitting at the feet of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, we have that famous story of Martha and Mary. Martha's going to throw a big dinner party for Jesus. I tell you, I mean, that's important, right? I mean, when we did our ladies event yesterday and our ladies worked hard to make sure it was just right for you. I've heard repeatedly from those of you who attended said it was just an awesome time at the Christmas brunch. But I mean, they worked hard to make sure everything was just right, to make sure everything would be a blessing to you guys. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Martha is trying to do the same thing here, but there's an exception. It's that she's doing it with a wrong heart because it's a means to an end for her. She is not longing for the relationship. And so it says here in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, 
Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha, in contrast to sitting at his feet and listening to him teach, it says she was cumbered about with much serving. She was just a busy bee and it was, it was wearing on her. And so she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. Now that's interesting because you can't say Lord and then tell him what to do because if you're telling him what to do, you're Lord. But she says that Lord, tell her she's being lazy here. She's just sitting at your feet. She's not helping at all. That's not important right now. We got to make this perfect for you. You're, I mean, you're the Messiah and all. What is Jesus's response? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, you are careful and troubled about many things. You've got a lot of stuff on your mind, but it's not the thing that needs to be on your mind. Verse 42, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part which shall not be taken from her. You can call me Lord and then tell me what to do all you want, but I'm not doing what you tell me to do. This is what's important, and I'm not taking it away from her. Jesus had a very important lesson for Martha. Martha, I'm glad you want to make this special for me. But what's going on right now is the most important thing. My relationship with you guys. That's what I'm more concerned about. Listen, we strive to do everything we do at CCO to our very best. We want our music to be on spot. We want those who are serving. I give advice to those who teach here. I'll listen to them sometimes. I'll say, hey, you might want to work on this or work on this. I mean, we strive to do our very best. I ask the guys, every year I meet with our leaders and I go, what can we do better? What are we doing well? What do we need to work on? Every year we do that because I know I want to do everything I do for the glory of God. I want to give him my best. And I think the Lord wants that. But I want that to complement our heart of worship, not replace it. I want our very best music up here to complement our heart of worship, not replace it. The opposite, of course, is not good either. You don't want to be sloppy for Jesus. We don't want to get up here and be like, yeah, you know, we have a hospitality ministry, but we have no clue how long those eggs have been sitting out. I think they were here last week and nobody put them in the fridge, but praise Jesus, we got eggs today. No, we don't want to poison people in Jesus' name. We want to do our very best. Those ladies and guys who work in there, they work hard. They get here before I do. And they're in there and making sure that everything is nice for you guys. The the team that gets up here to do music, they practice because they want their vocals to be right. They want their instruments to be right. They want their timing to be right. They want to do their very best job. And that's good. We want to do that. We strive for that. But I want all that to complement our heart of worship and never replace it. Everything we do here should come and stem from, from that heart of worship. Our excellence should be hand in hand with that. And I want to encourage you, don't let that happen in your personal life either. It's real great to say, yeah, I read my daily bread every day. But if you just go through the motions and you're not having some quality time with Jesus, then I would, I would recommend that maybe you need a change. I've had times in my life where I've done that. I've had multiple times where the Lord said, I don't want you to do it this way anymore. Why, Lord? You're in a rut. It's so easy for you to do this. And the Lord will just shake it all up. I'll have times where the Lord says, I don't want you studying this way anymore. Why is that, Lord? Because it's just all routine for you now. So I want you to do it this way. Get out a notebook. I don't want you to do anything else. And, and I, one time the Lord told me this. I want you to get out a notebook and just get your Bible. I don't want you to turn the computer on. I don't want you to read any commentaries, nothing. And I want you to just take down at least three things from this passage that apply to your life. Lord, I've only got like nine hours left to study. I don't care. That's how I want you to do it. And sometimes you have to do that. The idea is always going back to that heart of worship in your personal life and in all the ministry that you do. This preparing the more offerings for God in a different location, they think it's going to work, but it's not going to. So verse 15, 
Balaam said to Balak again, stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord yonder. The word there yonder means as is required. In other words, we got to keep to the format to have any hope of manipulating God to our way of thinking, Balak. So I'm going to go yonder, meet the Lord. Verse 16, the Lord met him again and put a word in his mouth and said, go again unto Balak and say thus. And when he came to him, behold, he stood by his burnt offering and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, well, that's the will version. He didn't say well, but it sounds like he goes, what did the Lord say? Because Balaam doesn't appear to offer it this time. That's time he comes back and he goes, hey, this is what the Lord says. This time it's almost like Balaam comes back and he's like, ah, nice barbecue. And Balak's sitting there, you know, by the offering with his leaders. And he's like, what did the Lord say? Well, what did he say? Verse 18. And he took up his parable, his oracle, and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear, hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and shall I not do it? Or has he spoken, and shall I not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. I love this because God calls Balaam to pay attention. You know, Balaam's sitting there by his offering. He's like, I just want to get this over with. Curse the army and everything will be fine. And the Lord's like, Balak, the word there, rise up, it means stand up, man. This concept is, is he's kind of slouching. You know, he's not really paying attention. He's just going through the motions. And it's like the Lord says, stand up. When I'm talking to you, stand up. He says to him in verse 18, rise up, Balak, and listen. And then he says it again, hearken unto me. The word there means give your ear to me, Balak. You're not paying attention. Give your ear unto me, you son of Zippor. Balak wasn't interesting in hearing what God said. He just wanted something from God and expected to get it. But God tells him to stand at attention and to listen up because God has some important things to reveal about himself. Something Balak needs to hear. In fact, four somethings about himself. Number one, he says, God is not a man that he should lie. Well, that's two. The first one, God is not a man. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel much better. What an awesome truth to learn about God. Yes, he became a man, but he's not like me. He's far better. He's far better. Isn't that good news? You know, he could be counted on no matter what. He's not like us. He's not fickle. He can't be manipulated. You, you don't have to worry that someone else out there, when you're praying to God, going, God, would you work in this situation? That somebody else is working harder saying, God, work against him. And God goes, well, he prayed eight times and you prayed seven. Sorry, buddy. He's not like that. Secondly, God doesn't lie ever. Do you know that? He doesn't ever lie. Thirdly, neither is he the son of man that he should repent, which means to change one's mind. God doesn't think about what he'd said and say, ah, you know what? Ah, you know, I kind of got it. I was caught up in the moment, a little emotional. I made a mistake about that. I think I'm going to go a different route. Israel, I know you were my people, but man, Moab's giving me a lot of love right now. So I'm just sorry, guys. I mean, you never gave me seven altars. You gave me one. The Lord, he's not like that. He doesn't change his mind. That's why the Bible is relevant today because his character, his commands, and his promises never change. He is who he is. That's just what his name means. I am who I am. He never changes. And fourthly, he says, has he said and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken and shall he not make it good? See, God doesn't just do what he says he'll do, but he's capable of doing what he says he'll do. He's powerful enough to do whatever he says he'll do. That's important. I love that God does this because it shows that he loves these people too. Enough that he's willing to reveal parts of his character that they need to understand to a pagan soothsayer so that they'll turn from this facade, this make-believe worship session to truly follow him. Because God keeps his word, 
and does what he says he'll do and has the power to do what he says he'll do, he's not going to change his mind about blessing Israel. So Balaam relays that message. Behold, I have received commandment to bless and he has blessed and I cannot reverse it. Balak, God sent me right back here to bless again. That's why I didn't say anything when I came back. But since you asked, I have to bless. And God has indeed blessed these people. And Balaam says, I can't change that. Now again, we could stop right there and we'd be done. How has God blessed Israel though? God explains how he'd blessed them. And I love this. He says here in verse 21, he has not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. When God looks at them, the word there, behold, means to regard with care. He says, when I scrutinize them, I don't see iniquity. I don't see perverseness. I don't know about you, but our study of numbers, what I've noticed has been chapter after chapter of Israel's iniquity. (laughs) And yet the Lord says, when I examine them, that's not what I see. Isn't it awesome to know that God doesn't nurse along the wrongs that we've done to him in his mind? If I were God, I'd be like, well, I could curse Israel if I wanted to because, I mean, I remember that time with the water. Oh, I remember that time with the manna. I mean, there's probably like three or four times with the manna. We do that with wrongs done to us sometimes where we kind of have that little favored blanket in our heart of someone's hurt to us and we bring it out and we kind of pet it every once in a while and we want to be mad at them again. We bring it back up. Like God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that with us. He forgives when he does it. He restores us completely. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's gone. It's a done deal. He also doesn't see perverseness. Now, the word perverseness, it means an experience of misery or trouble. And in this case, because of judgment or discipline. In other words, Israel isn't involved in anything right now that would require God to discipline them. So trying to get him to do so is useless. And so as a result of that, It says in verse 21, the Lord, his God is with him and the shout of a king is among them. For God brought them out of Egypt. He has, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Israel does. Israel's unstoppable right now because God is in covenant relationship with them. He's not far off. You know, you come and you bring your offerings on this lofty place, hoping to reach some unknown place in the sky. But like the Lord says, you don't have to go look there for me. I'm right down in their camp. I'm right in their midst. And if you were to get close enough, you'd hear the shout of a king. That's what you'd hear. How would you expect me to curse them? Cursing Israel would be like cursing myself. And that's not happening. See, God had a purpose in bringing them here. I brought them out of Egypt and I've been with them every step of the way. And I have turned Israel into a big old bull with horns. You know, the word there, unicorn, the King James, is, I don't know why they called it that. There's no such thing as unicorns. The word means the old oryx. It's a massive horned cattle that's now extinct. And it says it's, he's got the horn of a massive oryx. He's this big bull that you don't want to get in his way. You don't want to be the china shop he walks into. This bunch of former slaves certainly wasn't the best army in the world. But guess what? It was the most blessed army in the world. And as a result, they were mighty. So nothing physical or spiritual could be done to stop them. Balaam says, surely, verse 23, there is no enchantment against Jacob. Neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what God has wrought. If you want to look at them and you want to come to a conclusion, the only thing you could say is look at what God's done. Look at what God's done. God's done something pretty amazing. 
How do you expect God to curse that? There is no enchantment. There is no divination. There's no magical curse, no spell. There's no luck that you could pull here that somehow it would work off. You could pick a hundred different spots to curse them from Balak, but you're always going to roll snake eyes. You're always going to roll snake eyes because I'm for Israel so strongly that I could never be against them. Now, what's cool is we have the same promise, don't we? In Romans chapter eight, verses 31 through 39, I'm not gonna read it all to you, read it all later, but it starts off by saying, if God be for us, guys, who can be against us? I mean, what what does it matter if somebody says something to you? What does it matter if someone threatens you? What does it matter if someone curses you? What does it matter what anyone does to you? Because God is for you. And if he's for you, you're good. You're good. So often we tie God's love and blessings to our ability to deserve it. But it's never that way. Israel is everything that they are here. All the blessings they're experiencing is because it's the work that God has done. And it's the same thing for you and me. It's the work that God has done in us and through us. And do you believe that? Because until you do, you're just gonna beat yourself up for this life. And I don't want you to waste your time. God could have stopped there, but he knows Balak is angry. Balak's already thinking up a new scheme. And so the Lord's message here has one final warning for the stubborn king, verse 24. He says, behold, which means Balak, if you haven't heard anything up to this point, you need to listen to this. Just listen to me for one moment. Behold, he says, the people, Israel, they shall rise up as a great lion and lift up himself as a young lion. And he shall not lie down until he has eaten of the prey and drunk of the blood of the slain. Balak, if you're gonna continue to be opposed to Israel, you're gonna lose everything, everything. And as we close tonight, I wanna leave that thought with you too because the same is true for us. You know, are you fighting against God right now? Are you mingling your own bad religion where you mingle, you know, the ideas of your own ideas with what he demands and his worship? Because you can't win that fight. And if you keep it up, you will lose everything. So here's my proposal to you this evening. Why not surrender instead? Why not say, okay, God, I'm not going to another spot to see if the curse will work there. Right now, right here, I surrender. Listen, if you'll do that, the Lord will receive you to himself. I promise you that. God had told Balaam not to go with the Moabites and to not attempt to curse the children of Israel. God is not persuaded by vain offerings and insincere prayers. God longed to bless Balaam and the Moabites, should they repent and cease from their attempts to curse Israel. This is God's heart towards all people, that they would repent of their sin and selfish desires and have a relationship with the Lord God on His own terms. Sin gets in the way of that. Don't let selfish ambitions or desires get in the way of your relationship with God Almighty. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. 
We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.